In the not-too-distant future, there will be no civilization. There will be no heroes. There will only be... Mad Max. Yo kids, this is Nick the Tooth, and today I am joined by my co-host and publisher of the Infinite Worlds magazine, Winston Ward. Alright, here we are with another episode of Infinite Worlds podcast. This time we've got a two-parter. We're talking about Mad Max. Specifically in this episode, we're talking about Mad Max and the Road Warrior. Yeah, this is going to be a really excellent episode. We get into a lot of the um, history behind the making of the franchise, how it started, George Miller's influences and inspiration behind it, some really cool trivia that you probably don't know about the makings of these movies and the actors involved. If you're a fan of the franchise at all, definitely stay tuned. And if you've never seen any movies in the franchise, allow us to talk you into watching them. Yes, very good, very good. So I kind of wanted to tell you, man, it's been on my mind. I cannot... The other night, I watched this movie that one of our listeners, Nicole, had recommended okay. to me on Instagram. It's called The Skin I Live In, and it's like this weird kind of sci-fi Spanish film, subtitled. And dude, I, it vaulted right to the top of one of my favorite movies of all time. Have you seen it? No, I remember when it came out. It, it's got Antonio Banderas in it, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, I remember being told several times that I needed to check it out. Winston, you have got to okay. watch this movie. It is the filmmaking is unbelievable. Antonio Banderas is just a lunatic. It is hmm, I like that. Without question, I'm I just finished it. I think it was yesterday and I cannot wait to watch it again. Okay. It's one of those movies where I'm like, was that – I felt like I got hit by a truck after it was over. I was. Like, I like those oh kinds gosh. of movies for sure. Oh, man. So cool. So cool. How about you? You've watched anything uh, lately or read anything? Me and my wife are actually re-watching Twin Peaks again. We're almost finished with that, Rewatching the original series. We've got like two more episodes. This is my third time watching it, and I think it's my wife's second. And then we're going to watch the movie and then the Twin Peaks The Return, which we, neither of us have ever seen. Really looking forward to that. There are scenes in that first Twin Peaks series that, man, I I have watched. I've been on edibles, and I'm like, what in the world did I – like that tree in the red room. And <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Where I'm just like, this is – I don't even know what it is, but it's genius. It's, it's, it's working at a level that is below consciousness, right? We got to do David Lynch at some point. Yeah, we, it would make sense to do a David Lynch one, even though he doesn't do too much sci-fi stuff. I, it might be fun to get him in here anyway. Eraserhead, right? Well, I mean, that's almost – I mean, I don't even know what to call that, but he definitely – I know, right? He, he made Dune, you know, the original Dune film, so, you exactly. know. Exactly, yeah. I would definitely wouldn't mind talking about him sometime. He's one of my favorites, man, for sure. i tell you what, um, pretty soon, in case you guys haven't heard the rumors yet, uh, Infinite Worlds is going to expand and include a sister magazine to Infinite Worlds Sci-Fi Magazine that's going to be a horror magazine. Once we do that, we might expand the podcast to include like horror elements too, you know? I love horror, dude. Yeah, me too. I'm such a fanatic. You know, the Venn diagram of horror and science fiction has a ton of overlap. You know what I mean? So it's easy to discuss both things at the same time. Oh, no question. What I like about them is both of them, again, work on that like subconscious level, right? right. Mm -hmm. And they are so related, you know, especially when you get into like Alien and you get into some of these sci-fi horror. That's my favorite genre in the world. So I was so pumped to hear that you're doing it, man. Congratulations. And I cannot wait. One of these days, you know, we'll finally make the actual official announcement. We're working on some details behind the scenes before we get to it, but it's coming. It's coming, guys. Ah, I'm so pumped. I'm so pumped. All right. Let's do it, man. Let's dive into this episode. Mad Max. Here we go. All right, dude. This is perhaps the most cursed episode we've ever tried <laughs> to record. <laughs> oh, man. No doubt. In the history of Infinite Worlds podcast. <laughs> this is our, our uh, seventh attempt, I think, oh. is what it says here. My gosh, dude! I went, <laughs> I went, I went back and listened, 
And as I listened to each one, I'm like, wait a minute. It, first, I was like in Texas, and then I was in Louisiana, <laughs> and then I was in Florida. <laughs> oh, man. crazy. <laughs> yeah, just so everyone knows, we had uh, bandwidth issues because – Yeah, we started this one all the way back on George Miller's birthday like a month ago trying to record this episode. And we kept having problems because of – I think – I think – because of my internet connection. I've got a whole new internet service provider now. So we should, you know, if uh, all things work out and go in our favor, we should have no problems here at this time. Let's fingers crossed. Dude, I want to know, how is it possible that we were supposed to have flying cars, you know, by this time? (laughs) And yet we can't even in the most high-tech city of Denver, Colorado, where you are, we still have crappy internet. I mean, well, almost every city I've ever been to in the United States has had crappy internet. So, Well, uh, here's our uh, episodical dose of politics. But Joe Biden did, just announced his infrastructure plan, and included in the infrastructure plan is broadband, internet access, you know, nationwide. So uh, who, who knows if that'll ever, you know, come to fruition or be a real thing or whatever, but that is a target. Yeah, and you know what, though? it's It really points out the fact that infrastructure is so critical to economic mm-hmm. development Absolutely. and infrastructure is really only the realm of big government because to do it on a nationwide scale if you just allow it to market forces they'll just serve very small metropolitan areas like denver and then you mm-hmm. hardly have any type of co- competition you know free market competition because it's so difficult to get that last mile but if you think about it from the 40s in the especially in the 50s after the New Deal in America, right. when they they instituted all of the, they started building all the highways. Think about the economic development and that golden age that happened. After Absolutely, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- there was a booming middle class. The middle class was, you know, by comparison to today's standards, they were wealthy. You know, a single person could own a home and a car and work just a regular job. At 40 hours a week. <laughs> At 40 hours a week, you know, and it's just not that way anymore for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. I actually read this great thing today about how supposedly capitalism breeds innovation, but that's not always the case. You know, for example, how streaming services started Netflix started to basically replace cable by ha- having one place where you could go and see everything you wanted to. You wouldn't have to add a bunch of add-ons and all that stuff. But then all of the individual studios that were selling their product to Netflix decided, you know what we'll do is we'll start our own streaming service. And now you've got, you know, 25 different streaming services that you have to pay for individually. And it's like worse than cable now. (laughs) It's crazy. It took us back just because, you know, the market could support at least the startup of all of these different streaming services. Who knows if it'll support them long term. term. Yeah. It's cool, though. This discussion right here kind of leads into what we're talking about. So you had like this new deal and this revival of, you know, the middle class after World War II and, you know, really almost globally as far as industrialized nations. And then we started getting these shocks from the oil industry. And and that's what kind of spurred this entire franchise. And so we're here to talk about one of the coolest franchises Mm. In the sense that, uh, you know, we're now on what, four movies that have spanned like almost 40 years, 50 years. I mean, it's incredible. I like the word cool to describe the Mad Max franchise a lot because I think, you know, there are a lot of things to love about various different science fiction franchises. And Mad Max is, you know, it's a little bit polarizing because it's so outlandish, you know, but where it's outlandish, it's also equal parts cool. It's equal parts, you know, hyper imaginative, hyper original, very visually striking, very memorable in some of the imagined realities. So I really like that word cool to describe it. It's definitely, I've always thought of it as being one of the coolest thing around. I've always thought of Mad Max himself as being kind of the epitome of cool. Yeah. And now these days also you can throw several other great characters in there that are also kind of fall into that line of cool Furiosa being the obvious, you know, addition. So I'm really obviously super excited to talk about Mad Max. It's been one that I think both of us have loved since we were youngsters. Yeah, very much so. So let's uh, let's jump into it, man. Let's totally. start with Mad Max number one. My experience with all this was I, I was I had you know Fury Road, the latest one, is is probably my favorite action movie of all time. 
It is unfrickin' believable. Great choice. Whoo, man. <laughs> and and so, but to go back, I, I don't think I had really watched. In fact, it had been so long since I watched the first Mad Max that uh, there were parts of it where I was like, I don't even remember that. I don't even remember that. <laughs> and what's what's crazy is how the the original Mad Max is such an, a rad origin story. And so after watching it, I kind of like dug deep into like how it was made and, uh, you know, what George Miller, what his background was. And it's it's one of the coolest like independent film stories that uh, that I've ever learned about. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I'm really excited to get into this history for sure. I saw Mad Max, the 1979 film Mad Max, probably about two years ago. And then I watched it again in preparation for this podcast, which would have been about six weeks ago at this point. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> One thing I really liked about it is how much the movie holds up, not just in like interest level and plot and everything, but also it's a really, really well-made movie. And the thing that really surprised me that is that, you know, one, it's a 42-year-old movie. And two, it had a shoestring budget. Yeah, no doubt. Not only, Winston, did it have a shoestring budget, but keep in mind, George Miller, who's a director – was not a director. He was an <laughs> ER doctor who just had a love of film and was thinking, you know what? I'd love to get into movies, but you know, what do I want to do? And it, it goes back to that adage for writers or directors or any type of creators, which is write what you know. Yeah. And so for him, being an ER doctor in Australia, he just kept seeing, you know, this was at a time in the mid 70s when, you know, muscle cars were really big, right? right. And they probably didn't wear seatbelts. <laughs> <laughs> and so he just saw grotesque and hideous, just car crash after car crash. And was like, there is something here. There is something here with this whole muscle car thing. It would be so cool to write a film or to, you know, create a film and direct it that incorporates all this. And so that's kind of was the basis for the whole Mad Max thing. It didn't even start out as a, uh, a dystopian type movie. The only thing that pushed it in that direction was the fact, like you alluded to, was that they didn't have any money. Right. And so they had to film in like old abandoned warehouses Abandoned locations, just generally. Yeah, where and so it kind of just kind of started leaning that way, and they kind of went with it, right? Okay, first of all, imagine being an ER doctor. Imagine being a medical doctor, first of all, and you know having gone to medical school and being you know a relatively young person and just having achieved the level of medical doctor, and then you're just doing your job. You know, you're just a couple years into your job, and you realize, shit, I want to be a filmmaker instead, and just doing that like complete, just completely independently just saying you know what i'm going to do is i'm going to just create this movie and make it myself just because i have an interest in filmmaking and then going on to be one of the more successful filmmakers of your generation you know oh my gosh one of the greatest that ever lived He's a legend, i agree completely right? <laughs> absolutely um so you know first of all you got to hand it to george miller because obviously the guy's a genius i mean there's no other way to describe a person who's able to do something like that and pull it off and, you know, parlay that transition into the success that he's achieved. That's really remarkable. Yeah. Admirable, even outside of filmmaking, just as yeah. a human, human being. It's like Absolutely. you followed your passion despite everyone telling you no and you're crazy. And, you know, obviously that's a thing that you and I are, you know, we preach that gospel a lot too. So George Miller really lives up to those standards, you know, and so it's a real honor to get to talk about George Miller and his body of work in this oh episode too. So right. you know, hats off to this guy besides the Mad Max movies. You know, he's also famous for the babe movie franchise and the happy feet. So he has this real weird dichotomy between these hyper violent adult movies and big budget children's movies. And both are equally successful. Yeah. I mean, he was obviously, he's obviously someone who just says like, I do what I want. I don't care what expectations are. Mm -hmm. This is my life. I love that. He's one of my, he's a hero, man. He's yeah, for sure. When I was a kid, I don't know if you had this experience, but when I was a kid in high school, we had uh, driver's education. And so we would have, you know, they're teaching you how to drive before you get your license. I think I was 15 years old or something. And I, for three solid classes, we had to watch 
these old movies from the 50s. They were like all the cars were old and dude, <laughs> there were no seatbelts. And all it was was footage again and again and again of car crashes. And it was the most gruesome bloody i remember just i mean i'll probably still i'd probably need to go to to therapy for this because i remember sitting in there and all of us just with our jaws on the ground just going oh my gosh they're like this This is what happens if you drive bad (laughs) it was the scared straight model of youth education like which, which was popular in like the 50s through the probably through the 90s i'd say oh I mean, they don't do that kind of stuff anymore. And, you know, I got a little bit of that kind of stuff growing up, but they had, they were, had started phasing it out by the time I was that age. But I do remember watching all the Simpsons parodies of those videos and watching them sometimes on Mystery Science Theater 3000 before they start the movie. They do like shorts and they're usually educational shorts. So I've seen them there as well. Oh, I bet they're, they're all over YouTube. I don't even think I can go back and watch them. I'm starting like my heart's Blood. beating just thinking about it. Blood on the <laughs> asphalt and uh... – Oh, dude. The camera would like go and dip inside the car and you would just see mangled bodies and people alive and like, uh, oh my gosh, it was crazy. So anyways, that's what what he was inspired by, right? Right, right. And, uh, you know, he, he took that, that graphic imagery and he was like, you know, this is something that everybody is aware of happening. You know, and he wasn't the first director to make this kind of movie. Right before this, there was Death Race, the American movie with Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. I think it's Death Race 2000. Yeah, that came out in 1975. And that's a similar sort of thing, but. Like a genre, right? It's like a genre. It's almost like a genre. Crash genre. Yeah, but he pared it down at first for his movie because of the low budget. You know, there was no big elaborate race or anything like that. It was just rogue type individuals just doing their thing, like souping up their cars, sometimes joining small gangs. He took a lot of the production out of it. You know what I mean? Like he, he was like, this doesn't need to be a big production. We just need to get audiences to understand the danger. Yeah. And, you know, he did so much stuff to make that happen. Like so many dangerous, dangerous stunts were performing that's a that's a hallmark of the mad max franchise are all these extremely dangerous stunts but when he was um making this movie he had such a low budget that he was having his camera man ride on the back of a motorcycle going 110 miles an hour just holding the camera over their shoulder yeah and let's not forget this was at a time there were no gopros and cameras were not small not at all where you're shooting a Big freaking camera. Yeah, like you're holding on to a stunt driver who's driving a – or an actor who's driving this motorcycle 100 miles an hour, holding this camera that weighs 35 pounds over your shoulder. And, you know, you have to keep your eye on the lens in order to film. And you just have to let your fate, you know, hang in the wind at that point. And, you know, there's there's lots of really great quotes from some of these camera people just saying that they know that they were risking their life to make this movie, but they did it anyway. Oh, my gosh. It's it's really a study, right, in guerrilla filmmaking, and and Absolutely. not just not just in using abandoned locations and and fitting your story to that, but also like you're saying, you know, it, it, with these stunts, the, it, pulling something like that off, even today with GoPros, I can't even fathom how they were, you know, his ability to as a director and never really directing an action film before. Yeah, or any film really, except for potentially some short films. Short films, yeah. Exactly how much of a guerrilla film this was. Let me consult the Internet Movie Database's first piece of trivia about this film. And it reads, most of the extras used in the film were paid in beer. (laughs) So... You couldn't even do that in America anymore. No, no. That wouldn't even be allowed, I don't think. Oh, my gosh. No, it's illegal. I mean, you'd have to be in some weird rural county where they don't have any freaking laws. I don't even know. That's basically what he did. In fact, he filmed a ton of the stunts illegally. Like, he never got permission from the local authorities to film these stunts. He just would do it, set up, film the stunt really quickly, and then break the strike the set and move, wow. you know, in case the police showed up. And this went on for a couple of weeks before the police caught on that they were filming a movie out there. And then this is Australia in the late 70s. The police were just like, awesome, let's help. Oh, my gosh. Without the use of any sort of like red tape, we're just like, great, we're here to help you. And then would block off roads for them and escort them to and from shoots and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's crazy. 
Well, one more final thing before we get into the plot, as far as when you watch the movie, to keep in mind one more aspect of like guerrilla filmmaking. And I think it's it's something that I think Orson Welles talked about this, is that he liked to make movies that were almost silent films. That mm. someone who is watching, let's say, in Japan doesn't really have to even read the subtitles. And if you watch, the dialogue is so minimal, which was smart because catching audio and recording audio and making dialogue work is very, very difficult. And, and I love how he focused on, no, this is going to be a moving, you know, a series of images that will tell the story. And that carried on throughout the franchise, even when they got massive budgets. If you watch Fury Road, the last film, I mean, it's almost like, again, a silent film. How much mm -hmm. dialogue is in that movie? Very, very little. It started off as, like you said, like a budget thing, not having good microphones to record audio and that kind of thing. And then when the movie was uh, shipped overseas and redistributed in America, they actually dubbed over all of the dialogue because, one, it was not recorded that great in the first place. And two, this was really the U.S.'s first introduction to Australian cinema. Before Mad Max hit theaters in the U.S. in 1980, really America was largely unfamiliar with Australia as a whole, like a, a mainstream America anyway. So the accents at the time were kind of deemed incomprehensible even though, you know, they're speaking English the entire time. So they actually dubbed over all the different actors' voices in the original theatrical release of the film. Wow, that's crazy. That's so crazy. Well, I tell you, it was so cool to go back. So I definitely recommend this as a, a franchise that everyone should watch from like one to four. Mm -hmm. Because one is really, really such a great movie. So anyways, the movie starts. It's after the world is on uh, the brink of collapse, not due to nuclear fallout or any kind of nuclear winter. Again, for budget reasons, because Miller at that point was like, well, even in the second movie was like, you know, we there's so many things we would have to show radiation and all that. Let's just do it where, you know, not only were they inspired by the car crashes, but he was also inspired, like I alluded to earlier, by the fact that um, in the mid 70s, the whole world went through this oil crisis and people were lined up for hours around gas stations trying to get uh, gas. And they didn't know if, you know, if next week or the week after that would be the end of it. And so the fear of it was, you know, if this oil crisis continues, then what's going to happen? How are we going to heat our homes? How are we going to eat? We're so, even now, we're so dependent on petroleum. Absolutely. I saw, I remember seeing this documentary that was like, if we reach peak oil, and we lose before we replace and move to green energy, if that happens, you're talking about billions will starve because all of our agriculture is dependent on oil. Yeah. I mean, that's how the tractors run. That's how the trucks that carry the food from the farms to the distributors run. And they're not going to just be able to automatically replace those with electric vehicles the day of, you know? No, exactly. So, you know, he that was in his his mind when he was writing this script. And so the film starts when they're like on the last legs of society. And it opens up with a, of course, a car chase, an awesome car chase. Oh, yeah. With a villain. Was it the Toe Cutter? Is that right? The Knight Rider is the original. The Knight Rider, yes. The Knight Rider is the first villain you see in the movie. Yes, yes. And he's awesome. Isn't yeah, he's he? just yeah. he's just completely out of his mind. <laughs> One of my favorite things we're – we're starting at the beginning of the movie. One of my favorite things is, okay, so we talked about how originally he was just going to make kind of a car chase action movie. And then after you know taking a look at his sets and like what he was going to be able to work with, he decided that it should be made as a post-apocalyptic film or you know one in the not-too-distant future where society has collapsed somewhat. And that was going to be the way that the film went due to budget circumstances. But right at the beginning of the movie, there's a really great shot – and it's two road signs that are actual road signs in Australia that just happen to be the locations they were able to use. And the signs read Anarchy and Bedlam. Wow. And they're real road signs. 
And he was just like, oh, this is perfect. This is a great way to set up what's going on in the Mad Max universe is just by filming these actual signs here in actual Australia. Yeah. No, no. It was really cool, man. I love that. Again, that that guerrilla filmmaking. So anyways, he – Mad Max is – we don't meet him at first, but we meet his crew and he's part of a – new as society starts to collapse you have more gang violence and these gangs are in are using uh muscle cars right and motorcycles and all that and to uh to kind of wreak havoc and so they're part of a group like a uh like highway patrol type thing what is it Mm -hmm. mfp yeah the mfp yeah and so that it starts with a uh with a car chase where you've got the night rider who's this lunatic and being chased by um it was goose right goose yes yeah so max joins that pursuit as well but initially it is the goose pursuing uh the night rider yeah and so so not giving away too much but there's this massive chase we're kind of introduced to the world and then we move to after the chase you know uh um, we move to finally meet, start meeting Max. And it's such a cool freaking twist where you go to meet his family and he's got this like beautiful, like bucolic, uh, like he and his wife and his kid. And he's kind of, we meet him at a time where he's kind of fed up with being in the MFP. He's like, what kind of life is this? After seeing his friend hurt, right? After seeing right. who's hurt. And so he decides, you know what, man, I'm done with it. I don't want to do this, you know? And and this right here is like one of my favorite parts of a, of a movie. It's kind of like where in the hero's journey, where the hero, like Luke, right? When Obi-Wan is like, I want you mm-hmm. to come with me and, you know, go on this journey. And he's the, the hero goes, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> no, no, thank you, man. This is too much. I, I, I've got a, I've got my life here, and then something happens, right? right. And where Luke's, he Luke says, "I'm not going to go," and he goes back to the farm, and his aunt and uncle are burned corpses, right? And yeah. He's like, "Shit!" I got this go. time. It's not the aunt and the uncle. It's the yeah. It's his, not- his, 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 his his wife and child. Yeah. So, so he goes, so he goes to his, his boss. Right. And, uh, and is like, I'm quitting. And the boss is like, no, don't quit. Don't quit. And and at that point he gives him his car, right. His black uh, pursuit special. Is that right? Yeah. The pursuit special, the, the interceptor. Yeah, and that oh, dude, it's such a badass, like black murdered out black, uh, muscle car, which if you think about it, it's just like Obi-Wan giving Luke the lightsaber. Right? Absolutely. Before we get any further, it's the comparing Mad Max to the hero with a thousand faces is important. He is exactly that. Even if you don't see him as that initially as the hero with a thousand faces, the hero archetype, it becomes clear that that's what's going on by the time you get to the fourth movie because they, oh. replace, they replace Max with a different actor, but it's clearly not the same Max necessarily it's like a max on either a different timeline or you know it's the face number 1001 yeah he's the archetype right right exactly he's the archetype he transcends even like batman right Mm -hmm. it's like you just become like these different characters yeah it's so cool so cool and so anyways he he's given his lightsaber which is the black pursuit special and but he's like no I'm I'm done I'm going to go and and the, his boss which is kind of dude so, dude the characters in this are so freaking weird and almost <laughs> yes. kind of like there's this gay erotica thing going Absolutely. on inside the movie with multiple characters even his yep. boss right dressed in leather and yeah and that continues down the franchise like all the way through the franchise as well that becomes another like kind of hallmark of the franchise oh, as well it's so cool man how did miller uh, that's one thing that i'm like where did this come from where in the world did he get was he that genius where he's just like i'm going to push the envelope with everything with every everything with every thing. element and the that the character with the most homoerotic overtones in this movie is the villain the toe cutter yeah played by Hugh Keys Byrne and that character is one of the most iconic villains ever and it's really great because that actor goes on to play another iconic villain 
in the same franchise in Fury Road yeah. when he when he plays Emerton Joe. And both of them are freaking incredible. Yeah, right? he just plays the most amazing characters. <laughs> yeah. And uh, unfortunately, he passed away recently. He passed away about three months ago. Oh. So, you know, RIP to Hugh Burn. Wow. That sucks. But man, he was awesome in it. He was awesome in it with a legacy. And so anyways, so Max goes on this. His boss is like, go ahead, go on a vacation. Just think about this. Don't make a decision yet. And so Max go get loads up his family and they go to the countryside and they're having this beautiful it kind of is reminiscent of a uh, what is it? Butch Cassidy and the Sun Sundance Kid. Oh yeah, okay. Right? I, I, I had not considered that, but that is actually a pretty cool comparison. Yeah, before they're they're like ambushed and died and murdered, you know. And so they go on this like cool, like beautiful, buco- again bucolic like vacation with the three of them out in the countryside. Complete contrast to the dystopia of the rest of the movie. And uh, it, it turns out that they run into Toe Cutter's gang again. And so they're on in the countryside and uh, Toe Cutter ends up, you know, spoiler alert, but kills his family. And just like the Star Wars scene, he doesn't have a choice. It's like, no, I, I have to choose this life now. And it's such what's cool about it is it's. I don't think that Miller was thinking, okay, I'm going to create a rich, rich, rich backstory for the rest of the movies. But that's what he essentially did. Because this first movie is really, I would say a third of the movie is about the the love and the innocence of his family, right? right. And losing that. And so there's no question about why and how, you know, he becomes this like anti-hero. Right. Yeah, he's he's Max Rokitansky, and then he's Mad Max. You know yeah. what I mean? The, the the transition happens when he's pushed over the edge by the wickedness of society, I guess, the wickedness of the world around him by villains like the Toe Cutter. And all of this is put in motion by the collapse of the society because of something as simple as a gasoline shortage. Yeah. What I liked about this, too, was that, you know, if you watch some of Clint Eastwood's spaghetti westerns, like some of his his antiheroes that he plays, you it's barely alluded to what caused him to become what he is. But yet with Mad Max, we have that. If yeah, we you didn't know, have right this away. first movie, it, it would just be like little flashbacks and you'd be like, oh, I kind of wonder what that is. This is like the most fully developed like backstory that really you you get, you know, in any franchise. What's really funny is I, I spent – the first film I saw was the second film and I spent years never having seen the first one. It wasn't until I was probably 20 or so that I saw the first one eventually. So I had no idea what had made Max so mad, you know, until I actually saw this movie later on. But then when I did eventually see it, I was like, oh, well, that explains that, you know, character – Completely understood now. Dude. It, yeah, it didn't require me to be like, ah, I still don't quite understand how he ended up like he is. It's like, oh, no, yeah, okay. Bro, you know what, though? It was the same thing for me, and it was the same thing for most Americans. Because right. so many people, even when it was released in the theater, didn't see it. Right. Like, it didn't get the kind of a wide release that Road Warrior did, which was right. the next movie. So anyways, not to spend too much, because we do have four movies here. The first Mad Max an amazing freaking movie. It explains fully like how, you know, obviously he goes on and it becomes like a revenge film, right? It's really funny. In a lot of ways, it's almost like Mad Max, the original film is a prequel instead of all of the other movies being sequels. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, because of the way it was released in America and everything and a lot of the way it developed in our national consciousness, it kind of almost has that role in the franchise despite it being the first film in the franchise, both in terms of the first being made and chronologically the first. A lot of people skip over it because, you know, you can enjoy the rest of the movies without exactly knowing what happened to Max. But, you know, if you haven't seen it, definitely watch it. Yeah, I remember. So so anyways, yeah, we'll go on to the next movie was Road Warrior 1981. This was released. Like I said, this was my first exposure to the Mad Max universe. Yes, mine and, as well. Yeah, and so at the beginning of that, they kind of have this like short montage retrospective of his prior story. You know, they got you got some snippets from the original film. 
but they do include more apocalyptic and, and they really explain that, no, we are in a dystopia. Society has now completely collapsed. If I'm not mistaken, they mentioned nuclear war in the intro to the second film or something like something like that. Yeah. They allude to the fact that there has been more than just a gas crisis at this point. Yeah. I think I saw that the writer was saying we wanted to limit that nuclear effect to a very small area. We didn't want the whole nuclear winter to go down. He goes, the reality is a nuclear winter, we're probably going to have insects. You know what I mean? That are going to survive. Right. But anyways, I remember seeing that and being, and being like, where's the first one? Where's the first one? And you couldn't find it. You know, it had already hit the theaters and in a limited run. And at that point there was, I could never find it on cable or even at VHS stores. Mm -hmm. So this was it, man. For a lot of people, for years and years, Road Warrior was how you were introduced to Mad Max. Now, as far as Mel Gibson, what was his trajectory after Mad Max? Was it Road Warrior that really put him on the map? Let's take a pause and talk about his career because there's a really great piece of trivia about him auditioning for the first film. He actually came to audition for the film as a bit part. And when he showed up at the audition, he had the night before been in a bar fight. So he was really badly bruised and cut up and uh, had a big swollen eye. And George Miller saw him. Uh, George Miller saw him and was like, hey, you know what? We need freaks in this movie. So you're going to be perfect. Just come back in a couple of weeks and we'll, we'll give you like a real role. We'll decide on a real role for you. We're not, we're not casting that part right now. So just come back in a couple of weeks. So a couple of weeks go by. He comes back, but he's all healed up by this time. So he, instead of looking like a freak, he looks like young Mel Gibson, which is to say, you know, a super stud. So they're like, so they're like, Oh, never mind. You're not going to be a freak. You're going to be the lead character, the the title, the the title character of this film. Wow. And this is based on Mel Gibson having done almost no acting at all professionally before this. No kidding. No kidding. Crazy. So then, uh, you know, he got some more roles, but then his big break was the sequel to this movie, the road warrior, which was distributed worldwide upon its initial release instead of being, you know, redistributed later and was a huge success, massive success. Wow. That's crazy. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. So anyways, we pick up after the retrospective, it really establishing that we are now society has collapsed. We are in a dystopia and we start with Max, you know, in full, full gear. And is he driving the interceptor from the first movie? I was unclear. If I remember remember correctly at the beginning of this movie and this like now it's been like probably almost a year since I've watched this last, this one last. Cause I had, or maybe, maybe like six months, but if I remember correctly, he's walking at the, him and his dog are walking because the interceptor has been stolen. Okay. If I remember that correctly, I think that's what happens. Okay. And so he, he encounters a gang, right? So he escapes like a, a, another apocalyptic gang, right? Mm-hmm, that's right. At the beginning and which was so cool. I don't know how Miller thought of this, but comes upon a gyrocopter, right? And that lunatic in the gyrocopter, this guy is without question, like one of my favorite characters from all of the movies. Absolutely. He's, he's not quite comic relief. You know what I mean? Because there's not quite any jokes in this movie, but he does kind of add an air of levity, I guess you'd say, to the film. Almost like whimsy in a way. Yes. <laughs> because in, in, a, in a time when people are struggling to you know, get gas to ride the motorcycle, this guy's like, I still got a helicopter. You know what I mean? Oh, it was so cool. It was so cool. Yeah, he's one of the best, man. This tall, gangly guy. He was so rad. And so um, then he comes upon, and once again, this mingling of erotica that they come upon the gang assaulting a couple and raping the wife, right? And it's like, oh my gosh, how horrific can this be? And really establishes, man, this, it pulls no punches, right? Yeah. Where some films tend to kind of like allude to it. I mean, they're like, they get graphic with it. It kind of reminds me of Kubrick with Clockwork Orange. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? We're going to go there and we're going to show it. And like you said, you need that comic relief, right? Where there's something funny because the reality is, is that this dystopia, there's nothing good about it. Yeah. Everything is bad. Everything is bad. So uh, Mel Gibson like jumps in and saves the day. At this point, he is full on Clint Eastwood anti-hero, right? Mm-hmm. And grabs the guy who was part of the couple 
and brings him back to where the guy's from, which is a settlement with that's like barricaded in with like school buses and rigs and all that, where they are mining and pumping the most important asset that there is in this dystopia, which is oil. Right. And so it's like a settlement with uh, oil, highly coveted and brings him back in and saves the guy. And in exchange, he tells them, you know, they're like, why don't you join our crew? Why don't you join our crew? Once again, sticking to that hero with a thousand faces script, which is saying, I don't want any part of it. I'm a loner. I got I to gotta do my own thing. Just me and my dog. Yeah, just me. Exactly. Right. And so he's like, I just want, you know, I brought him back for one reason and only one reason, kind of like the Han Solo thing. Right. Mm, absolutely. Where, yeah. He's like, no, I don't want any part of it, you know. And so he's like, I don't want to be a hero. Just give me my gas. That's the only reason I'm here. I don't care what happens to you guys. Good luck. Yep. But uh, uh-uh, I'm on my own. And so at that point, you know, you've got these settlers who have this oil You've got this. He sets it up perfectly. You've got this gang, right, which is run by now we have, again, an amazing freaking villain. One of the most iconic and memorable villains in all of cinema history in this movie. Humongous. Yeah, Lord Lord <laughs> Humongous. Dude, um, where did he come up with these names? I, it's so like, cool. I, dude, one of the best parts about his movies is the creative character names he comes up with. But just the creative characters in general, you, Lord Humongous, if you've never seen The Road Warrior, first of all, what are you doing? Seriously. But yeah. if you've never seen The Road Warrior, Humongous is this gigantic bodybuilder in like a nearly nude leather daddy <laughs> outfit, bondage gear type deal, and a hockey mask over his face, like an old school 70s hockey mask over his face. And he is terrifying. Like, like there's nothing short of terrifying. And he's got sex slaves chained to his vehicle. Again, it continues that like homoerotic theme of how society has gone that direction in the post-apocalypse too, because Lord Humongous comes with like literal sex slaves chained to his vehicle and stuff. Yeah. You know, one of the things it reminds me of is there's like that cliche that a movie or a story is only as good as the villain. And George Miller figured that out. I mean, George Lucas with Darth Vader figured that out. I mean, it is all about the freaking villain, right? Mm -hmm. They keep matching Max up against really great villains throughout the franchise history. So I think George Miller is one of those people who has like a really dark side and a really light side because he's able to understand like the depths of human darkness with the way he captures villains and makes them not just pure evil, but cool, believable villains, even though they're so ostentatious and outrageous in their appearance and their name and everything. You know, you still look at the villain and go, I'd rank that villain really high in the pantheon of all time movie villains. And that's true of pretty much all of the ones he's created. You know, it almost kind of adds, if you think about it, it's just kind of hitting me now. It almost adds, like the eroticism almost adds another layer and gives the villains a depth yeah. that a lot of villains don't have. Like Darth Vader is basically asexual, right? Right. And I completely agree. And he does it without making them one-dimensional rapists too. Yeah. Even though, you know, rape does occur in these universes or whatever, that's like a side hustle of the villain kind of like humongous is not presented as being a rapist. You know, he's presented as being a super capable warlord and gang leader and terrifying figurehead. But, you know, apparently he also has sex slaves chained to his vehicle, too. Yeah. Well, you know, it's done in a way. It's almost like you were saying, like, the the uh, the actual act is committed by the underlings. Right. And with him, it's never – it's only alluded to, you know. Right. Yeah. So it's really freaking cool. It's like he permits it, but he doesn't stoop to that level himself almost. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's all awful. Let's obviously editors note here. All of this is awful stuff. Even though we're calling these villains cool and everything, we don't think what they're doing is cool. No, it's, 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 you know, yeah, it's horrifying. Um, So anyways, Max is like, you know what? I'm out of here, man. I don't want to have any part of this. You know, you guys are having, again, this Western motif. You're the town that is being attacked by these gangs. Forget that. Even go back further. We're now talking about like Seven Samurai, right? Oh, yeah. Is it, I'm sorry. Kurosawa. Is that Mad Max? Is that Mad Max or is that is that Yojimbo? I, I, I can't tell. Yeah. <laughs> Same story again and again and again. You have this anti-hero, you know, who is who is needed to defend the town. And it's like, no way. 
you know, and then something happens and it changes his mind. For him, what happens is he gets back in his car and he takes off and has a run in himself with the gang and is basically, you know, after a car chase is in a crash, is left for dead. They think he's dead. And so he ends up like moping back bloody and uh, just near death to the settlement and they take him in and he's like, all right, I'm here to help you. And so that's like that twist, right? Where it's like, all right, let's do this. It's the deus ex machina in film where God has to intervene and be like, no, 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 no. This is the path you're on. (laughs) You don't get to make up your own mind. No. I heard this great thing for writers out there. uh, Keep in mind that you can use the deus ex machina as a literary device or storytelling device to hurt your characters, but you can't use it to help them. Oh, so, I love yeah. that. I love that. Right? That's an excellent rule to go by. I love that. Um, and that's they definitely hurt him in this movie. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah and pretty much the entire franchise. Yeah. So he go, he goes back, and there they have a goal. You know, it's not just that he's going to go back and protect the settlement. It is, and this is critical. It is, I am going to help you find a coastal haven. We are going to leave here and we're going to go from this desert and we're going to go find Utopia, like the Israelites, right? We're going to go through the desert and we're going to find Zion. And that is so rad because what it does is it really sets up a mirror for what happens in Fury Road. When I went back and watched Road Warrior, which I hadn't for years, but I'd watched Fury Road so many times, I couldn't believe how similar the movies were. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's almost like a remake or a reboot almost of the franchise, but it still incorporates some of the pre-existing lore. I, I don't know. We'll get to the, the uh, Fury Road stuff when we get there, but uh, I've got some thoughts on that. Yeah. So anyways, uh, again, we're already 50 minutes into this and we got two more films. This film, incredible. He, uh, the, the interactions with the, in the, in the, like you were saying, the whimsy and almost comic relief with the, uh, with the gyrocopter. And I looked it up. That character is only called the gyro captain. He doesn't have a name. Dude. One of the best freaking characters ever. I, I remember like you would see like his character come from out of nowhere, kind of like freaking Han Solo did at the end of Star Wars when all of a sudden he's there to kind of save the day and you're just like, oh my gosh, you're so happy because you know you didn't expect it. But the uh, the twist ending at the end of Road Warrior is just one of the coolest freaking things I've ever seen in a movie. I, I love what happens at that point. I'm not going to give it away, but that's yeah. if you haven't seen it, go back and watch it. It's the way he sets that up and the way it's so subtly unfolds. You're just like, oh my gosh, it's not heavy handed. It's just so freaking dope. And I think that cemented it as almost kind of like a really cool literary weird movie, man. Very cool. I love to add trivia to the ends of these. So I'm going to throw a couple of pieces of trivia uh, that I've you know collected about this particular movie. You mentioned earlier about you know being the strong silent type the hero with a thousand faces type character the archetype mad max has very little dialogue um and that's generally true throughout the films and this is a really good example in this movie mel gibson has 16 lines of dialogue and two of those lines are i only came for the gasoline So uh, it really definitely follows that route of staying along that archetype. You had mentioned earlier about Mel Gibson's career trajectory and about whether or not he was well-known between the first movie and the second movie. And the answer is not at all. In fact, he was still so unknown in the U.S. that the trailers don't actually have Mel Gibson in them. The U.S. trailers don't. No way. Yeah, or at least barely. And wow. they, fo- they focus entirely on the car chases and the action stuff. Wow. Um, I, it makes me want to watch the, the U.S. trailer, the original U.S. trailer for it now, but Dang. I'm not going to write this second. Um, and here's some cool science fiction tie-ins, which I think are important too. This movie is cited at, by James Cameron as being the main influence behind The Terminator, or one of his main influences. Obviously, there's a whole nother situation with the origins of The Terminator relating to a Harlan Ellison story, and he got sued because of that. So obviously, there's other influences behind The Terminator 
Terminator as well. But that's what James Cameron says, is that this movie was a big reason he decided to make The Terminator. Wow, that's so cool, man. I wonder what it was. Which elements do you think? Did he cite what it was about the movie? Yeah, it doesn't say. It's just one of the pieces of trivia I found laying around. Here's another one. Emil Minty, who plays the the young feral child in uh, the second movie, says that Mel Gibson taught him how to throw a boomerang for the making of this film, which means Mel Gibson is a really, really, really Australian type dude. (laughs) Right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's one thing to keep in mind as you watch these movies. These are all very Australian movies. And uh, yeah, for sure. And that Aborigine kid, again, one of my favorite characters. I mean, he just steals the show. He and the gyrocopter. I mean, steal the show. It's, but you know what though, man, again, humongous and max. I mean, that is Miller crafted and I'm sure he just made sure no one's appearing on screen unless, especially these main characters, unless they can steal the show. And that's, what's so cool about it. Yeah. A ton of scene stealing peripheral characters is a big element to these movies because, okay. In the first movie, it's called Mad Max and it's really about Mad Max, but Toe Cutter, the villain, one of the show stealers, the goose. Max's partner, possibly as important to the plot as Max himself. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. In the second movie, you like you said, the gyrocopter, you've got the kid, you've got the people that run that town, you've got Lord Humongous. You could cosplay any of these characters and everyone would know exactly who you're doing. You know what I mean? <laughs> Even though this movie was made, you know, 40 years ago. All right. So that is it for the first two and for this episode uh, of Mad Max and Road Warrior. So pumped if you haven't watched them, even with the spoilers we've given, it's so worth freaking going back to watch because they're just mind blowing. Even talking about them, I'm like, man, I want to go back and watch it again. I didn't realize that. Because despite having great plots, I mean, even though they have great plots, really, it's the visual spectacle of these films that really like sells them anyway. I mean, the characters are amazing. The acting is great. Everything's good. But it's impossible to describe the spectacle of these films over the course of an hour long podcast. Like you really have to watch them if you haven't. This episode is the first two uh, movies in the franchise and the next episode of the podcast, which we're going to record right this second will be the second two films in the franchise and also rumors about you know upcoming prequels and sequels and that kind of thing too so if this is interesting you thus far definitely check out the next episode too get stoked for that guys all right we'll see you then guys if you're enjoying the infinite worlds podcast you could definitely check out more infinite worlds related stuff by visiting our website infiniteworldsmagazine.com there you can subscribe to infinite worlds magazine it's a full color ad free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IWSciFiMag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. Andrew Alonzo.